great story. Adultery, murder, battles, alliances, traitors, intrigue. It's better than the script for a James Bond movie. It was so good. So we moved from King David, who was the greatest king ever, to his son, King Solomon, who was the wisest king ever. But then, after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom split in two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, that's where Solomon had built the temple. They had their own string of kings. But in the northern kingdom, there was this string of really bad kings who do not worship the one true God. One of the worst kings of all was Ahab. He was ruthless and evil. And in 1 Kings 16.33, we read, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. He married Jezebel, and she led her king to worship Baal. Now, these people in this kingdom completely ignored God's great commands. And here, in 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16, we meet, for the first time, Elijah. He's one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. And I asked Marianne Quigley if she would read our scripture passage for us today. As Laurie said, this is from 1 Kings. As a preface to our scripture today, there are some interesting words, as usual, in the Old Testament. And one of the words that were in this passage was wadi, W-A-D-I. I found this word fascinating. I'd never heard it before, so I went to several reference Bibles to see what was a wadi. Well, a wadi is a brook. So when you hear the word wadi in the scripture, think of a babbling brook. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the Wadi Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the Wadi Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the Wadi. But after a while, the Wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and 
prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as I have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Pray. Let us pray. May the words just read and the word made flesh in Christ penetrate our hearts and minds in a new way today, O Lord. Amen. So we meet Elijah for the first time, and he antagonizes the most evil king in the history of the kings by telling King Ahab that God is going to cause a drought in the land that will not end until God says it's going to end. Now, this is even more annoying for Ahab and Jezebel because of their worship of Baal. The god Baal was supposed to be the god of storm and rain. So this announcement is like a poke in the chest to this king. It says, I'll show you who the one true God is. Things got so bad that Elijah knew that he was going to have to get out of there. He had to flee for his life. He knew that this king was not going to take it lightly. So he went and hid, as Marianne said, in a wadi. So a wadi, I didn't know either what it was. It was like this valley that is filled up with water. It was cut by some water originally. So when it's rainy season, it's full. But then in other seasons, it's completely dried out. So Elijah is there hiding from this evil king, and he had to keep his head down really low because Ahab says in 1 Kings 18.10 that there was no nation or kingdom to which he would not go to seek Elijah. Elijah, excuse me. So what does God do to keep Elijah safe and hidden and alive? He has ravens, of course, deliver him bread and meat in the morning and at night. Now, that's an interesting choice because ravens are a bird of prey. They eat other dead animals, and they're in the category of unclean. So a good Jewish boy could never eat a raven, but somehow God could use a raven to provide him with food to eat just to keep him alive. It seems ridiculous. When the wadi dries up, God sends Elijah right into the heart of Baal worship to Zarephath, where there's an area where Jezebel and her father were from, right at the center of the evil that had infected Israel. That is even more outrageous. God tells Elijah that a starving widow is going to feed him. In fact, She's down to her last little bit of flour and oil, and she's going to bake her last little cake so she can make a last meal for her and her son, and then they're going to curl up in a ball, and they're going to die. But when Elijah, this strange foreigner, comes up to her and asks her for her last bit of food, 
She gives it to him. It's ridiculous. Widows of the Old Testament were some of the most exposed and vulnerable people. The word widow in Hebrew means one unable to speak. The widow is also, in a sense, unspoken for. Because she has no husband, she has no legal status. Actually, widows are often listed with orphans and strangers as those to be cared for. They epitomize the powerless and the poor. You know, it wasn't that long ago when women in America had a really tough time making it on their own. In the mid-70s, my dad left my mom for another woman and they got divorced. When he left, there was finally peace in our house that we had never experienced before, but my mom was really concerned about how she was gonna care for my brother and for me. The wage gap at that time, for every dollar that a man made, a woman only made 59 cents. So mom, of course, didn't make a lot of money, even though she had worked full-time during their entire 17 years of marriage. When they got divorced, all of the credit rating went with my dad, which means that she couldn't borrow money for anything, for a health crisis, for a car, for a house, nothing. I read in the Wall Street Journal that the wage gap today is still around 20%, that a man would make a dollar and a woman would make 80 cents. So perhaps we are wise to still be mindful of the single moms, of the widows, of the orphans, and others who may just be living right on the margins of our, of our affluence. Now, God does a miracle by having the widow's flour and the oil never, ever run out until the rain comes again. But I think an even bigger miracle is that this woman with a starving child would give her last morsel of food to a stranger. As a mom, we would not only die for our children, we would kill for them. When I told my daughter Jordan that I was struggling with this text, that I just couldn't believe that this mom would give away her last bit of food to this stranger when she had a hungry kid, I just said, I couldn't do it. And Jordan said, that's why she's in the Bible and you're not. <laughs> Touche. But you've had to have heard of like the mama bear's protective love, right? They say that the most dangerous place to be is between a mother bear and her cubs. According to bear.org, 70% of human deaths by grizzly bears were caused because the grizzly bear was trying to protect their cubs or they sensed that there was a danger for their cubs. I think that all moms and dads share some of those protective traits for our kids, which is what makes that widow's sharing of her limited supply such an unbelievable miracle. But who really is providing for Elijah in these two examples? It's God, of course. God provides the food, but God uses these two unlikely instruments, an unclean bird and a starving widow to deliver his provision. It does make me wonder if God can use them, maybe he could use me. I think it's the ridiculous abundance of God that is most notable in the starving widow only when she risked using up all that she had 
was God's abundance shown. This reminded me of a children's moment that I did a few years ago. You may remember it. So imagine that we have God's love on this piece of paper and that each corner represents a piece of God's love. And let's say we see something that moves us to want to share God's love and we feel compassionate, so we cut off a corner and give away a piece of God's love. When you look at it, we went from four corners down to, wait, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, we have more of God's love when we gave some away. Well, so we're going to, we'll do it again. And it goes up to six. God's love is like that. It's not a finite amount. In fact, it grows. The more we give it away, the more that we receive ridiculous. I think it's really important, really important to pause and note that we're not talking about a God who provides health and wealth and happiness to those who go to church and to those who believe the right things. This is not the kind of abundance that we are referring to. About eight months ago, Kate Bowler wrote this in the New York Times. On a Thursday morning, a few months ago, I got a call from my doctor's assistant telling me that I have stage four cancer. The stomach cramps I was suffering from were not caused by a faulty gallbladder, but by a massive tumor. I'm 35. I did the things that you might expect of someone whose world had suddenly become very small. I sank to my knees and cried. I called my husband at our home nearby. I waited until he arrived so he could wrap, so we could wrap our arms around each other and say the things that must be said. I have loved you forever. I am so grateful for our life together. Please take care of our son. Then he walked me from my office to the hospital to start what was left of my new life. But one of my first thoughts was also, oh God, this is ironic. I recently wrote a book called Blessed. You see, she's a historian of the American prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel tries to solve the riddle of human suffering. It's an explanation for the problem of evil in the world. It provides an answer to, why me? The prosperity gospel popularized a Christian explanation of why some people make it and some people don't. But it also claims that your abundant wealth and your material gains and your rewards are all from God. You are blessed. Now, blessed is kind of a loaded term, right? Because sometimes it can actually mean, thank you, God, I could have never done this without you. But it can also imply that it was deserved. Thank you, me, for being the right kind of Christian who gets it right all the time. Hashtag blessed. The prosperity gospel folks have revolutionized prayer as an instrument for getting God to always say yes. It offers people a guarantee. Follow these rules and God will heal you, restore you, and provide for you abundantly. Kate says, the most I can say about why I have cancer, medically speaking, is that bodies are delicate and prone to error. 
As a Christian, I can say that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here, and so we get sick and die. The ridiculous abundance of God is seen most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus left his home in heaven where he was fully God, and he humbly moved into our neighborhood. His first breath of life as a human was filled with the smells of barnyard animals. His whole ministry was marked with giving away, not acquiring, not accumulating. His disciples were called to leave everything behind to follow him, their families, their homes, their livelihood. Jesus says, give away all your stuff of this world and I will show you abundant life. And this Savior humbly rides a donkey to his shameful death on a cross. And in case we didn't get it in his life, the economy of God is demonstrated in all of its glory in Jesus' death and resurrection. Out of nothingness, God brings possibility. Out of death, God brings life. Out of scarcity, God brings abundance. One of my friends recently shared a story with me about a time when she was experiencing a scarcity that she could have never imagined. She told me that for the first half of her life, her dad was the most important person in the world to her. He was steady, faithful, and exceptionally loving. He was her very best friend. He also happened to be an alcoholic. That disease took his life this year. But in late 2005, she and her siblings got a call from the hospital in the city where they grew up, and they learned that he had been admitted. When she spoke to him, he was incoherent, and he was saying that he was held there against his will, but really he was going through a very intense detox, and hospitalization was the only way to keep him safe. So they all knew that this had been a problem for their dad, but they just never knew how bad it was. He was only 57 years old. So she and her sisters flew home immediately. Their dad didn't even recognize them. They were told by doctors that the alcohol had destroyed his body so much that if he ever drank again, he would surely die. They left the hospital, and they were shell-shocked. So they went back to his house, which was their childhood home, and they found it in absolute squalor. A basement door was just hanging by one of the hinges where he had clearly broken it, looking for his keys. His cat was sick with kidney stones and lay dying on the floor, and she spent the evening in the emergency room with this cat trying to save it, but it was too late, and even the cat died. They returned later, they poured out all the liquor bottles that they could find, they threw away all the pornography, and her heart was literally broken in two. It was a moment that she didn't even know that she could survive. Throughout the evening, she was understandably feeling quite nauseous and tired, and her sister, who is intuitive and proactive, went out to the pharmacy. My friend learned that night laying with her sister in her dad's empty bed. That she was pregnant. 
with her first child and her dad's first grandson. In an instant, the ridiculous abundance of God was revealed in her scarcity of life. She wrote, P.S., in 2008, my dad stopped drinking, and he had eight years of sobriety before he relapsed. Eight years with his kids, enough time to see four more grandchildren come into this world. I'm grateful for the time, and both my dad and I see God's abundant love in that too. You see, this abundance from God is not perfect health, and it's certainly not stuff although we are called to share the stuff that we have. Particularly for us Americans, I think we have a hard time with this concept of God's abundance because we have a love affair with more. And we never, ever seem to have enough. At the root of it, we don't trust the story of a generous abundance that has been laid out for us in Scripture. Rather, we, rather, we buy the shadow story of scarcity the line that there's not enough. It doesn't matter what it is. Money, time, prestige, people who care about what we think, kids who show up at youth group. Our tendency is to say, not enough. The story of God, however, speaks in opposition to this narrative. Remember from the very beginning in Genesis 1, there is a song of praise for God's generosity. From manna in the wilderness, to the small lunch feeding thousands of people, the story goes on proclaiming the gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's an embarrassment. It's irrational. But God's abundance transcends market economy. Have you ever heard of the colony? In 1866, in a period of just over 100 years, the Hawaiian and then the American governments forcibly removed 8,000 people to a remote and inaccessible peninsula on the Hawaiian island of Molokai and into one of the largest leprosy colonies in the world. People who were suspected of having the disease were chased down, arrested, subjected to a cursory exam, and then exiled. Men, women, Children were forced into cattle stalls of a ship and were dumped on the brutal north coast of Molokai. The mortality rate in the first five years of this unforgivable land was 46%. The governments acted in this way because they believed that leprosy was uber-contagious, that isolation was the only means of controlling the disease, and that every person that they banished actually suffered from leprosy and was a hopeless case. They were wrong on all three counts. Here's the thing. What they didn't know is that leprosy is not a fatal disease. Neither is it highly infectious. It's a chronic illness that's caused by bacterium, and it's communicable only to people who have a genetic disposition. Less than 5% of the population Exile on Molokai continued for more than a century, the longest and deadliest insta instance of medical segregation in American history. In 1873, a Catholic priest named Father Damien volunteered to minister to the people 
the people in the colony. What was supposed to be a three-month stay turned into 15 years for Father Damien. They wanted it only to be three months so that these priests would have a less chance of catching the disease. But he went, he fell in love with the people, and he sensed a calling that he got directly from God. He said, people are sick and dying. They need comfort. They need hope. So many of them need their last rites. From the beginning, Father Damien decided that he would visit each exile at least once a week, and he always tried to greet the new exiles when they landed. That spring, his first season in the colony, someone died on average every 24 hours. As you can imagine, they spent a lot of time making coffins. Yet he brought with him a light that brought peace and some joy to these people. In October 1888, Father Damien collapsed while saying Mass. He wrote, I know that my days are numbered. My illness progresses quickly. Both my face and my hands are beginning to decompose. He confessed, I think I'm the happiest missionary in the world. Ridiculous. Maybe, just maybe, the widow teaches us that, it, that we begin to really experience God's abundance when we trust him enough to risk giving away what little we have. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, you are the creator and author of all things good. Lord, we pray that you will help us to trust you enough to follow you wherever you lead. Help us, Lord, to let go of our own self-centeredness, our obsession with stuff, and our tendency to hold on too tight. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the pain and suffering all around us, and help us to give what we have to show your love so that we all might experience your ridiculous abundance. Amen.
God has given us, whether it's a lot or a scarce amount, and let's ask him to show us who he wants us to give it away to so that we all can experience that ridiculous abundance. And now may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow through your heart so all may see and believe in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.